where we read these words, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And thus concludes this very remarkable and very wonderful portion of God's word, the book of First John. May he bless that reading to the understanding of all of us. Now we have come to our very last study in the book of First John this evening, the end of a very long pilgrimage through this book, but one which I trust you have found both profitable and in the highest and spiritual sense of the word, enjoyable as well. And it's fitting that our final study should return to the closing words of chapter 5, which comprise a part of John's epilogue or his concluding remarks uh, to this lovely letter, this epistle. Now, you will recall that a number of Sunday evenings ago, we had looked together at verses 18 through 20 with their repeated refrain on the theme of Christian assurance. If you look at verse 18, the words we know occur. We know that anyone born of God and so forth. And again in verse 19, the same repeated refrain, we know that we are the children of God. And in verse 20, the third repetition, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that on that occasion we saw together that John very fittingly concludes his great letter with the theme that has characterized the whole book in one sense, the theme of Christian assurance. Assurance that we have power over sin in verse 18, assurance of our persuasion of sonship in verse 19, and assurance regarding our participation in fellowship with God the Father and Son in verse 20. And these were things that we know, not that we doubt or are uncertain about, but things that we are grandly assured about as Christian men and women. And there's a sense in which these threefold themes were the grand climax to the whole of what John had been sharing with us as we saw. But tonight I believe that we need to look more particularly at verses 19 through 21 together to re-examine this blessed assurance, or a part of it at least, which the Apostle brings so clearly to believers. It's of great importance, because I remind you tonight that these may well be the very last words of the New Testament. We have evidence to think that the letters of John were written even after the book of Revelation. We can't be sure, but if these are the very last words 
of the whole of the New Testament, including the great exhortation of verse 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. How very fitting and very wonderful these words are that are before us this evening. Now, there's a threefold message in these verses, 19 through 21, and I want to look at that message with you together tonight. And the first part of that message is, quite simply, that we have a real historic Savior. That statement is made, you notice, in verse 20. We know, says John, that the Son of God has come. Now, it's interesting that as we look at this subject together this evening, it is a time of year when many Christian people are thinking about the birth of Christ. Of course, we recognize in the Reformed Church that there is no warrant in Scripture for this particular date of December 25th, nor for this season of the year, and almost certainly it's the wrong time for the birth of Christ, which most likely would have occurred in April. And there's certainly no warrant in Scripture that the church should be required to observe such a festival as Christmas or the birth of Christ. But in the providence of God, we have come this evening to a passage that speaks of his incarnation. And that's where we are tonight. And that's why we need to look together at this statement. And if it had been any other Sunday of the year, it would have been equally appropriate because we are always to remember the ministry of Christ, which is his birth and life and death and resurrection, and it is always seasonal to do this. But do you notice what John is saying to us here? He's reflecting upon the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth. We know, he says, but the Son of God has come. Now, what is John doing, beloved, by that simple yet profound statement at the end of his letter? Well, certainly he's providing us with opportunity to think about the real meaning of Christianity. And if you observe Christmas at all, in spite of all its pagan accretions, I hope that in this season of, you, of the year, you have been doing just that, thinking about the meaning of Christianity. What is, in other words, this, this faith that we profess? What is it all about? And the answer, John says to us, is that it's all about certainties and realities. And this, he says, in verse 20, has a twofold bearing upon us. One as it relates to the Son of God, and the other as it relates to spiritually awakened sinners. Now let's take these two thoughts of this part of verse 20 and look at them. First of all, these certainties and realities that are at the heart of the Christian faith which we profess have something to do with the Son of God. We know that he has come. Now surely, 
This statement has no meaning, beloved, if it does not say to us that the great central point of earth's history, the point that divides the centuries into B.C. and A.D., if you like, the fact that distinguishes the two parts of God's revelation, the Old Testament from the New Testament, this fact is determined by the coming of the Son of God into human history. And on this everything turns, whether men see it or not, whether men care to acknowledge it or not, that there is such a person as the divine Son of God, that he is not just a Son, but he is the Son, the only begotten of the Father, as John has described him in the Gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, the eternal Son of the ever-blessed God, his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased, the one who has been made flesh and dwelt amongst us, as, as John says in the Gospel again, who was born in Bethlehem and brought up in Nazareth, Nazareth and died on the cross of Calvary, this historic Jesus has come in to the field of human experience and the realm of human history. So in answer to the question, what is Christianity all about at the end of the day? It, says John, is about the coming of the Son of God as a certainty and a reality. Now, as an indication of how important this is to him, do you notice the tenses that he has used? It is the past tense. We know that he has come. And I reminded you four Sunday evenings ago as we touched upon this thought, but this is not the normal expression that one uses. It implies something has gone before. You see, if I say simply, my wife is here in this service this evening, it means simply that she's here. But if I say my wife has come to this service here this evening, it implies something beyond her being present, that she has already been somewhere else and has existed somewhere else and has come here from that other place. And you see in the very use of the tense that the Son of God has come, there is implication that this Son of God is already pre-existent and has come from the somewhere of the eternities themselves into our history, into the stream and flow of this world. And that it's not make-believe. The virgin birth is a certainty. His being, as we would assume a carpenter in Nazareth, is a certainty. The thirty hidden years of his ministry, as he served humbly there, in that humble place, is a reality. His three years public ministry is beyond doubt. His death is in history and a fact of history. 
that men saw and heard and touched him and companied with him upon the earth. He came, in other words, into our space-time continuum from somewhere that was outside of it. And if you turn back, you see, to the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, you have that thought so clearly stated that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen and looked at and our hands have handled, this is what we are proclaiming to you concerning the word of life. And again in verse 3 of chapter 1, he makes the very same point you notice. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Beloved, John is saying that what we have committed ourselves to is not a figment of the imagination. This is for real. And in the end, as eternity will show, it is the only reality that will outstrip every other so-called reality in this world that ultimately being transient will pass away. But in that tense, do you notice also this, that when the Greek uses the perfect tense, the Son of God has come, there is always the implication in that tense that someone has done something, the effects of which still continue to the present time. And the meaning of John's statement is certainly that he who came out of the eternities into time still continues here with us. And oh, the blessedness to know this evening that at the center and heart of the Christian message is the truth that by his Holy Spirit he is present still. And you remember the teaching in John's Gospel, chapters 14 through 16, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he does not come so much to supply Christ's absence among God's people as to accomplish Christ's presence amongst them. I will send you, Jesus said, another comforter. And the Greek word is another of the same kind who will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. And so you see the blessedness of Christian faith rightly understood according to John is not just that we have an historic Christ on whom we have believed, but a present Christ who is made real to us by the continuing ministry of the blessed Holy Spirit. Now is that what the birth of Jesus is to you tonight, his nativity, a living, ruling, reigning reality with whom we must deal continually in the present. The Son of God has come, says John. And this is the first thing concerning the faith that we profess. Now, the second thing, you see, is not relating to the Son of God, but relating to the awakened sinner. Because in verse 20, you notice, John goes on to say, 
but the purpose of his coming is that we may know him who is true. And what he's telling us is that the effect of this conviction and assurance that Jesus has come into this world should produce in it, or should produce in us, the knowledge of him who is true. That is, of Jesus himself, and in a broader sense, of God the Father and of the Holy Spirit as well. And the point, surely, that John is making is this, that until a man is spiritually awakened to discern the truth that the Son of God has come into this world as the only living reality that really matters, it will have no effect upon him until he is spiritually awakened. Because as he has just said in verse 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It's in the thraldom of the devil. And you see this tonight in Jacksonville with multitudes of pagans decorating their houses, having Christian symbols in their homes, listening to carols, over the loudspeaker systems in the stores all around this bustling city. But men and women who are in utter and total spiritual ignorance and darkness about the true knowledge of what it means when the Son of God has come. But for the sinner who has been spiritually awakened and discerned the profound truth of what John is bringing to our attention. It's quite different, isn't it? What has happened to the one spiritually awakened when the full import of this amazing news penetrates the darkness of his mind and changes the hardness of his heart? He has passed, says John, in another place, from death to life. We may know him who is true. Verse 20. In other words, there is a spiritual revolution that takes place. A new world opens. Not because the power resides in our own faith at all. Nor any fancied power in ourselves to understand these things as we'll see in a moment but only because that transforming power is in him who came into this world, who was rich, but who for our sakes became poor. And it leads us, doesn't it, this evening, whether it's so-called Christmas Sunday or any other Sunday of the year, to extol him who has come, the Son of God, historically and really into this world for sinners such as us. Now, beloved, in summary, do you see what I'm saying to you? We have a real historic Savior. Oh, what a blessed truth. I am a Christian man by God's grace this evening, but thank God I am not questing I'm not dabbling in this religion from the East and this one from California and this one that is Mormonism and another one over here that is Jehovah's Witnessism and trying to amalgamate them all together and find what is real and true. 
The Christian faith, beloved, is not a questing. It's a quest that has ended. Because the Son of God has come that we may know him who is true. And in his coming, God has no other word to speak. He has no more to say. He has no more revelation to give than what he has already given. This is the real thing. And you look around with tearful eyes tonight and you see men taken up with a world of materialism around them that they can touch and handle and taste and feel and enjoy. Whereas the other world that is truly the real world, open to faith alone, the unseen world, that alone is the real world. And you know, I was reading, and it was a very sad article I read a number of years ago, about the decline in that once great church, the southern church, now amalgamated to the northern church, to make the denomination known today as the PCUSA, the writer was saying that the characteristic of that denomination, though it claims to be Christian, is a preoccupation with this world. Social issues, social concerns, social betterment, and so on. With the result, the writer said, that between 1970 and 1980, a single decade, the congregations of that once great denomination were emptying out. One million members lost. Sunday school attendance dropping from 1.9 million down to less than one million. Because that Christian church did not recognize that what men really long for and what they really need and what really matters and what really counts and lasts is not the things that men see and touch and handle and experience, but the reality is in that realm that is open to faith. The Son of God has come that we might know him who is true. And that is the message alone that will restore health to ailing churches and weakened congregations. The most certain of all certainties, beyond a shadow of doubt, the surest of all events in history, attested on God's authority, we know that the Son of God has come, a real historic Savior. Now do you notice that the second thing that John brings to us from that same verse, verse 20, is a real experience of God. And he has given us, writes John, an understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now this, you see, is the fruit of what we've been considering. This too is for real. This is the real thing also. In other words, an experience of God which we could never before have had unless the Son of God had come into our space-time continuum. 
Now there's just two things I want you to notice here also. And the first is this, that the Son of God has come, says John, that we may know him now. What is the faith that we profess tonight? What is it all about? It is all about an understanding that has been given to us, beloved, now. And it's interesting that the Greek word understanding that only occurs here, this is the only place in all of John's writings that this word occurs, it means certainly an intellectual power, the capacity, in other words, to receive knowledge. And he, that is Christ, says John, has given us the capacity to understand what? The gospel message. The great truth enshrined in the real historic coming of Christ into this world. But notice, we are not born with it. We have not acquired it by dint of study and hard work and application, by poring over the pages of religious books and even of the scriptures. But it has been given to us, says John. And what it amounts to is a living encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ, a coming personally to him, an encounter in which the inward eyes of the understanding have been illumined, the mind closed against God by nature and sin has been opened, the heart hardened against him has been softened and made malleable and tender. And what John is describing, beloved, is what Peter experienced at Caesarea Philippi, remember, when in the Gospels he made confession on behalf of the other apostles of his Savior. And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded immediately to him, flesh and blood has not re revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Or again, it's like the encounter of the Apostle Paul with Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. This man whose heart was hardened against the gospel, who was intent on persecuting men and women and committing them in every place to prison and to death, meeting Jesus in the blinding light, brighter than the noonday sun, and forced to call out, remember, Who are you, Lord? And in that instance, he realized the real identity of the one he was persecuting. There came into the blinded mind of this embittered man the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Do you see what John is saying to us? This is not intelligence that is ordinary. It's not understanding that is common. It's beyond it. It's far superior in every way. This is something spiritual and supernatural. Whereas the other is merely carnal and by human acquirement. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1 verse 18 for the Christian church, that the eyes of your spiritual understanding might be enlightened in the knowledge of him. Whereas the understanding of the unregenerate, he says in Ephesians 4, verse 18, is darkened 
and you are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in you because of the blindness of your heart. Now that's what Christ does, beloved. He gives to us an experience that is real. And the second thing is this, that where there is no heart knowledge of Christ, there must be ignorance of God. It's a simple corollary, isn't it? But it's one we so often overlook in the preaching of the gospel. As John said in verse 19, just preceding it, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And ignorance of God, I remind you, is the root of all idolatry in this world. It's the source of all the worshipping that goes on of false or unknown gods, even in this age. And all around us tonight in this city are all sorts and varieties of, of experiences, religious experiences, Eastern religions, so-called Christian cults, the Roman Catholic Church's unwarranted and unwarrantable additions to the pure, pristine, biblical faith, and so we could go on and on, world religions, are all these simply a matter of taste and preference? No, John teaches. They are the fruit of the unregenerate, unenlightened mind. And in the face of all of these deceptions, God has revealed the true faith and the true religion and given to his elect and chosen people the supernatural ability to understand what that living and saving faith really is. Oh, my friends, is it not a blessed experience this evening that we meet not just in the presence of an historic Christ made real by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we meet together in a real experience of God. And we can say tonight that Christianity is not just history. It's not just existing in past tenses only, but in glorious present tense affirmations as well, that I may know him now who is true in the language of encounter and relationship. And if your religion tonight is not that, it is not anything. And so we come, thirdly, as I draw to a close, to the real freedom that we have from sin's tyranny. Now look at it with me in verse 21. It may, as I said to you earlier, be the very last verse in the whole of the New Testament. And if that is the case, we can't be sure. What a blessed truth it enshrines. Dear children, says John, keep yourselves from idols, the very last injunction of this holy letter, and it's prefaced by an address that expresses his loving and endearing affection for his children in the faith. My dear children, he says, keep yourselves 
from idols. It's striking in its simplicity. And it speaks to us, you see, of where we've really arrived at the end of this letter, I trust, this evening. Remember where we've come to tonight. We have a real historic Savior. Yes, we do. We know that we have a real experience of God. Yes, we have. We know him who is true. We have the only life, beloved, that is really worth living in this world. So what must we do now? And the answer, says John, listen, the answer is, don't let me catch you abandoning the real for the illusory. Dear children, keep yourself from what? From idols. You who have companied with Christ, what have you to do with idols? You who have tasted the real, how can you ever be attracted again to the illusory? And you must remember from your knowledge of reading in the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's visit to the city of Ephesus in chapter 19 of the Acts that it was a city like Athens, wholly given over to the worship of idols, to Diana of the Ephesians and all the other idolatries that were practiced there. And what John is counseling is, my dear children, if you have seen the real thing, you're through with the illusion. And the message for ourselves tonight as we finish is this. As we lay down this sacred letter, we need to ask what is the modern counterpart of these idols of antiquity, these illusions that unregenerate men chase after with all their energies into destruction. What does our age, beloved worship, and from these things, we must be on our guard. And do I need to tell you tonight that there are a thousand such subtleties and substitutions from, for God and illusions decked all around us so that the lust of the flesh will go after them and the lust of the eyes will look upon them and the pride of life will desire to have them in place of Christ. The intellectual idols of this age, the sensual idols of drugs and alcohol and sex and a life of sensuality and pleasure and power over others and unrestricted freedom for our passions. These are the idols that men go after in our age. And the allurements of this fallen world beckon us to follow after them, don't they? As really as they ever did in the streets of ancient Ephesus. The evil, base exaltation of men even in the place of God it's still a substitute for God, and some of you have been caught in that snare, I know. Whether it's a teenage rock idol when you were younger, or a television con artist, alias evangelist, so sad, isn't it? Can become a substitute 
for God and you begin to follow after it. Alas, tonight in this city, men and women in their multitudes, under the illusion of freedom, are dragged from one empty experience to another empty experience, yet never filled or fulfilled by any of it. Do you see what John is saying to you? Beware of this, he says. You have come to Christ, have you? You know him who is true, do you? You are in him who is true, are you? He says Christianity is not illusion. I know a saviour who keeps me from the slavery of sin. I know a saviour who companies with me by his Holy Spirit on the roads of life. I know a saviour who keeps me from the illusion of every kind of this world's idols. Beloved, as I finish, it matters what we believe. It matters where we are at this moment. God has been revealed in Christ. Salvation is found only in him who saves and keeps and is no illusion. So, dear friends in the Lord, guard yourself, keep yourself, for you who are accompanied with Christ, what have you to do with idols anymore? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're thankful for this passage this evening. It challenges our hearts. It moves our spirits. And we would say with the Apostle John that we are thankful to God who has saved us and rescued us and drawn us out of darkness into his marvelous light and freed us from all the illusions of this world by giving us the knowledge of him who is true and placing us indeed by the work of his Spirit in him who is true for time and for eternity. For this our gracious Father receive indeed our heartfelt thanks. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.